pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Father, we praise you for Christmas. As we think tonight on the implications of the birth of your Son, our Savior, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts, that our hearts would be drawn to worship. We pray for those here tonight who do not yet know you. We know that you have sovereignly brought them here tonight to hear your word, and so we pray that your word would cause them to see the glory of Christ, that they might believe and be saved. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here at First Baptist Church, uh, we have been all about Luke, right, this past year or so, just studying through that gospel week after week in our Sunday morning sermon series. And so uh, as we focus on the birth of our Savior on this Christmas Eve Eve, and then again on Christmas Day, I thought we should give Matthew some love also so he does not feel neglected. And so if you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to the gospel of Matthew. If you did not bring a Bible, it's all right. Please uh, feel free to use the pew Bible that you'll find somewhere in your row, and you can turn to page 757 uh, for Matthew chapter 2. The Bible that you are holding in your hands right now is God's holy and perfect word that he has given to us so that we might know him and what he has done for us. And it's comprised of two testaments. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament begins the story at creation. It's largely focused on God's dealing with one group of people, the Israelites. And while there's a lot in the Old Testament in terms of history and poetry and prophecy, the most important takeaway coming out of the Old Testament is that God has promised to send a Savior for all people from that nation of Israel. And that leads us into the New Testament, because the New Testament is about the fulfillment of that promise, right? The promised Savior, Jesus, has arrived. And the first four books of the New Testament, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they chronicle the life and death and resurrection of that Savior, Jesus. And the gospel that we're focusing on tonight, Matthew, well, Matthew begins his gospel in chapter 1 with this genealogy that connects this Jesus to Old Testament figures like Abraham and David, and kind of bridges the two testaments, if you will. And then Matthew follows that with a narrative of Jesus' birth, right? That's at the end of Matthew chapter 1, and that's where we're going to pick it up tonight. Our text is going to be Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's a narrative, the story of the wise men visiting Jesus, bringing gifts. I think it's a story that many of us in this room are familiar with, at least to some extent. But it's also a narrative that perhaps because of our familiarity with it, and perhaps because there's a lot of moving parts in it, we can easily miss the point of the story. And so look along as I read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. This is the word that 
God has for you this evening. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Christmas, Christmas, just hearing that word, it stirs up in us a lot of feelings and emotions, doesn't it? Maybe for you, this is a happy season. The festive spirit, the, the nostalgia, the, uh, the lights and the decorations and the cookies and the smell of the tree and the songs and the hot cocoa. And you just, you love all that stuff. And so really, this is the most wonderful time of the year for you. Or maybe it's a really stressful season. Right? One of seemingly endless social obligations and family gatherings and Christmas parties and and you add to that, right, the pressure of getting the right gifts for all the people on your list. And it can seem really, really stressful, kind of like, kind of like tax season. Or maybe for you, it's neither happy nor stressful, but it's, it's just a sad season. It's, it's just been a really difficult year, and what typically would be a happy time of year, like what should be a fun time of year, well, it just feels all the worse because things are not how you would like them to be. Maybe there's elements of all three. And yet other emotions and feelings mixed in also. But yes, while Christmas may be all of those things to us, my hope is to show you tonight from this text in Matthew chapter 2 that Christmas is about much more than all of those things. Because Christmas is first and foremost, and ultimately, about worship. About Jesus, the Son of God, being rightly worshipped. And I think we see that really clearly in this narrative from Matthew chapter 2. Just kind of scan your eyes through those verses that we just read. You will see that word, worship, appear three times in our narrative. And the dominant theme of this passage is worship. It's both about those who rightly worship Jesus, 
as king because they know who he is. And it's also about those who refuse to worship Jesus as king, even though they know who he is. So here's our game plan with this text. Tonight, we're going to focus on the wise men from this passage. We're going to see what we can learn about the, about the right worship of Jesus from them. And then on Sunday, uh, Christmas Day, we're going to focus on two other characters or groups of characters from this narrative. You've got King Herod, and then you've got the uh, chief priests and the scribes. And we're going to see what we can learn from them about those who refuse to worship Jesus. But our focus for tonight, what does this passage tell us about these wise men and how they rightly worship Jesus? Let's have three points tonight if you're taking notes. Uh, Point number one, the wise men are resolved in their worship. Point number two, the wise men are rejoicing in their worship. And point number three, the wise men are reverent in their worship. Resolved, rejoicing, and reverent. There's some life-giving alliteration, my early Christmas gift to all of you. Point number one, the wise men are resolved in their worship. So right now what I want you to do is I want you to just picture the scene of the wise men visiting Jesus in your mind's eye. Now if you've ever gotten like a generic Hallmark card or uh, you've seen like a a figurine display in a storefront, uh, your, your mind's been infected, right? Like you can't unsee what you've seen. Uh, typically in those scenes, you've got, you've got the baby Jesus in the middle. He's lying in this feeding trough, and it's nicely padded with some hay. You've got Mary, you've got Joseph next to him. And then in some configuration, in some combination, right, you've got the shepherds, you've got three wise men, and then you've got their camels, like nicely parked next to them. And then you've got like various barn animals. Right? There's always a cow. Usually there's a donkey. Sometimes there's a horse, and all of these animals, for some reason, are are taking great interest in what the human beings are doing. Now, if you've got that manger scene in your mind, like I'm not not trying to be the Grinch, I'm not trying to ruin anybody's Christmas, but we've got to admit that that picture that's in many of our minds right now, it's a lot more speculative and maybe even imaginary than it is biblical. For example... The Bible doesn't say that there were three wise men. That's not a totally unreasonable guess, given that they brought three gifts. But that's what it is. It's, it's a guess. And listen, speaking from like personal experience, you go to any party, there's always that guy who doesn't bring a gift and then tries to get in on other people's gifts. There are probably more than three wise men. And the prevailing thought seems to be that like, it's like visiting hours on, you know, the labor and delivery, delivery floor. And, like the shepherds come first and they see the family. And then, like, as the shepherds are leaving, well, that's when the wise men show up. And then for, like, this brief hallmark moment, you've got everybody there around, around the baby Jesus. And it's all nice and everything. But again, that's not in the Bible. Right? The shepherds, they visited Jesus on the night he was born. The wise men probably don't come for another few months as evidenced by the fact that Herod, when he's trying to kill the baby Jesus, he orders all the baby boys in Bethlehem, two years of age and under, to be put to death. 
And so timeline here, right? If we put Luke's account together with Matthew's account, the most probable timeline is Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The angels announce his birth. Shepherds show up. His parents then take him to Jerusalem, right, for the sacrifices that are in Luke chapter 2. That's where they meet Simeon and Anna. Then the family goes back to Bethlehem. But now the the census, the decree that we read about from Luke chapter 2, that's over. And so the crowds have left. And so now the family can stay in a house. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And so by the time the wise men show up, Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is out of the feeding trough. Uh, The family's in the house. The shepherds, they've been back in the fields for months. And the cows and the horses and the donkeys are back to doing what cows and horses and donkeys do. Now listen, if you, if you yourself sent one of those manger scene cards out this year, right, that's okay. Right? Now you know. And if someone bugs you about it, you just say, hey, listen, I was just making sure that you were paying attention if you knew what the Bible said. So no shepherds, no animals, no feeding trough. But we're still left wondering here, like, who are these wise men? Well, the Greek word there is magos, and that's where we get our English word magic. Uh, If you look in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that would have been around in Jesus' day, you'd see that the same word is used to describe the magicians that are in Babylon in the days of Daniel. And those magicians, they're often listed together with like enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers in the king's court. And so that kind of gives us some clues as to who these wise men in Matthew chapter 2 might have been. Like maybe they're from the area of like Babylon or Persia where Daniel would have been. Maybe they're into magic and astrology and all that kind of fun stuff like uh, the magos of Daniel's day. They clearly were wealthy, right? We'll talk about the gifts that they bring later. So maybe they're some kind of high-ranking officials or priests or court advisors of some sort. But at the end of the day, right, all of that is ultimately a lot of speculation. Really, the only two things that we can say for sure when it comes to these wise men, at least from this text in Matthew, are number one, they are not Jews, right? They are Gentiles from the east of Israel, Behold, Magos from the east came to Jerusalem. And number two, they came to worship. Verse two, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so I think a lot of the mystery surrounding these wise men, like perhaps Matthew's lack of detail, is his way of shifting our focus from who these guys were, right? Because the point of this passage is not who these guys were, it's what they came to do. And what they came to do, right, the point of this story, we have come to worship him. And so they follow this star, they come into the Jewish land. That would have been a journey of probably hundreds and hundreds of miles. I mean, we're talking about days and days of rugged travel, And once they get to the land of the Jews, they go to the one place that you would think, like if you heard that one has been born who is the king of the Jews, like the one place you would think to go, which is Jerusalem. Because that's where David and the kings who came from him, that's where they've ruled as king of the Jews. And that's where Herod was currently ruling as the king of the Jews. 
And so they go to Jerusalem, but the baby's not there. Now, if you've ever, like, traveled a long way to get somewhere, and you, like, finally reach your destination, and you're, you're relieved, and you, you're ready to unload and unpack and take your shoes off and relax, and then you find out that, well, you haven't actually arrived at your destination, now you've got to keep searching, you've got to keep traveling, that's a, that's a pretty serious letdown. And I'm sure there's a little bit of that in these wise men's heads. Like we came all the way to Jerusalem, and he's not even here. Now, maybe some people would think about giving up at that point. But these wise men don't let this small setback stop them. They keep pushing, they keep inquiring, where is he? Where is he? And finally, they get an answer from the scribes. They say, well, he's probably in the town of Bethlehem because that's where the prophet Micah said that he would be born. And so it's to Bethlehem that they go. And so we see, point number one, that these wise men are resolved in their worship of Jesus. They not only travel hundreds of miles to get to him, they continue searching diligently when he's not where they thought that he would be, And then they travel even further when they're told that he is actually somewhere else. They have this insatiable desire to worship Jesus. We have come to worship him, and they would stop at nothing to find him. And isn't this true? Shouldn't this be true of all of God's people? True worshipers are resolved in their worship of Jesus. The believer who truly sees the glory of Christ... Like the one who sees his, his beauty and his majesty and his holiness will do everything they've got to do to worship him with their lives. Like there is no price too steep. There is no cost too high. There is no sacrifice too large if it means that Christ is rightly worshipped through their lives. That's where this like make every effort language in the New Testament comes from. Like Philippians 3 Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal, toward the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so these wise men, right, they're straining forward past Jerusalem. They they press on towards Bethlehem, toward the prize of worshiping Christ. But at this point, I think we ought to take like a 20-second timeout and just kind of think about this for a second. Ask ourselves some questions like, how in the world did these wise men know that this star that they were following would lead them to the king of the Jews? Like maybe their astrology textbooks told them that this star is kind of out of the ordinary But no astrology textbook could tell you, if you follow this star, it's going to lead you to the one who is born king of the Jews. And even if they knew that this star was going to lead them to the one who was going to be born king of the Jews, why would they come all the way from the east to see him? It's not like the Jews were some world superpower at this point. They're a subjugated people under the Romans. And so, I don't know. Even if we knew that one was born king of the Jews, it's like, so what? Like, we get it if this was one who had been born Caesar of Rome. That's a glorious title. 
But why would they care about the one born king of the Jews? And most importantly, why would they go to worship him? Like from the beginning, right? This is never about like a diplomatic visit. This is about worship. We have come to worship him. So point number one, right? The wise men are resolved to worship, sure. But where does that resolve come from? And the answer, of course, is God. Where God revealed to these wise men that this star that they were going to follow was going to lead them to the one who was born king of the Jews. And God revealed to these wise men that even though the Jewish people were historically and politically insignificant, that they needed to go and see this one born king of the Jews. And God revealed to these wise men that this one born king of the Jews, he was no ordinary man. He was one worthy of worship. And so yes, true worshipers, all true worshipers will be resolved and persistent in pursuing and seeking after Jesus. But at the same time, we need to remember that it's God himself who gives his people that resolve to seek after him. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. And maybe there's no better example in the scriptures than these wise men. Right? Gentiles from the East, they're not part of the people of God. They're unacquainted with the ways of the one true God. Not that unlike the centurion that we talked about this past Sunday. It's so clear that it's God who must specially reveal himself to the hearts of his people that they might worship him. So friends, you might know the Christmas story like the back of your hand. You might know every single word to all of the popular Christmas carols, but unless God opens your eyes to see the glory of his son, to see that Christmas is about worshiping the Son, well, all of that amounts to nothing. Christmas is going to come and Christmas is going to go. It'll be January before you know it. And life's just going to go back to normal. But if God opens your eyes to see the glory of his Son, to see the true worship of Jesus, like if he gives you eyes to see what Christmas is really about— well, your life will never be the same. You'll be like the wise men. Look at verse 12. They departed by another way. Well, that's true both literally and spiritually. Point number one, the wise men are resolved in their worship. Point number two, the wise men are rejoicing in their worship. So they kind of swung and missed at Jerusalem. Now they're headed to Bethlehem instead. And so they begin the the six-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And listen, six miles is nothing compared to the hundreds that they traveled to get to Jerusalem. But it's still six miles. But God graciously sends them that same star to guide them to the actual house in Bethlehem where Jesus was. Now look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Did you catch how Matthew goes out of his way 
to point out the joy of these wise men. When they saw the star, it's not just that they rejoiced. It's not even that they rejoiced exceedingly. It's not just that they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. It's that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's repetitive. My seventh grade English teacher, she would have gone to town with her red pen on that sentence. But that repetition clearly serves a purpose. Matthew's driving this point home. These wise men rejoiced in their worship. They rejoiced because they were finally about to find the one for whom they've been searching diligently, far and wide, stopping at nothing. Look, what does Jesus say in his parable about the man who finds the great treasure? In his joy, in his joy, in his great joy, he goes and he sells everything and buys that field. Because when God grants to us the resolve to find his son, and then when our hearts find the one for whom we've longed, well, what can we do but rejoice? The wise men rejoice in their worship because true worshipers rejoice in their worship of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a really important point for us to meditate on this Christmas, that the true worship of Jesus needs to bring joy. It's an idea that we see like plastered all over the pages of the New Testament. Right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. But at the same time, right, it's a truth that we're so quick in our spiritual amnesia to forget. And perhaps there is no season in the year in which we're more tempted to allow the circumstances around us to dictate our joy than Christmas season. Because there's so many distractions, right? There's so many things going on. There's so much busyness, all of which kind of draws our eyes off of worshiping Jesus. And so we, in essence, we exchange, we trade the only source of true joy for the emotional ups and downs of the circumstances of life. And so my encouragement to you, as we kind of head towards the finish line here in this Christmas season, is to just spend some time over the next few days just intentionally focusing your heart on worshiping Jesus. I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that how joyful this Christmas season will be for you depends not on the gifts or the parties or the gatherings or any of that, but on where your heart is with regards to the true worship of the one who has been born King of the Jews. It's a daily exercise, 365 days of the year, to rejoice in Jesus. George Mueller, a great Christian who did so much for the kingdom of God, probably best known for his orphanage ministries, like the man worked so hard for the glory of God. And it's like, George, how, how did you do that? Like, how did you persevere in that labor for so many decades? And here's his answer, quote, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. 
The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. End quote. He saw rightly, he saw that his joy in worshiping Christ was of first importance. Point number two, the wise men and all true worshipers rejoice in their worship. Finally, point number three, the wise men are reverent in their worship. Look at verse 11. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. In the time that I've been in the ministry, I have seen a lot of newborn babies. And listen, uh, like objective truth, right? Babies are cute. That's just how God made them. And it's not in the Bible, but I think that God made babies cute so that we grown-ups would love them and care for them well. And so when I see a baby for the first time, right, my, my heart is just naturally warmed because babies are cute. Right? That, that is just the natural response of my heart. But I have never, and again, I've seen dozens of little babies, I have never had even the slightest temptation to bow down to and worship a baby. That's a good thing, because that would be entirely inappropriate to bow down and worship any human being. There's a scene at the end of the book of Revelation, uh, the apostle John, he's seeing all these glorious visions, and then he falls down to worship the angel giving him these visions, Revelation 22, 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And by the way, that's the same words for fall down and worship that we see in Matthew chapter 2. Now look at the angel's response, verse 9. He said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God, as in God is the only one for whom such reverent worship is fitting, is appropriate, is right. Let's just think about it. If it's not even fitting to worship an angel, a righteous, sinless being, well then, how much less fitting is it to worship a sinful man? If it's not fitting to worship a man, how much less fitting is it to worship a baby? But here, you've got these wise men worshiping the baby Jesus. And it is totally fitting. It is totally appropriate. It is totally right. Because God revealed to them that this is no ordinary human baby. That this is God incarnate. Very God, very God, the Savior of the world. And so the angel tells John, worship God. Well, that's exactly what these wise men are doing here. But it's not just that they're worshiping. I want you to see also the way in which they worship the baby Jesus. They fall down and worship him. Uh, that word means to prostrate yourself, like to get down on your hands and your knees and put your face to the ground. It's the same word that we see used throughout the book of Revelation in referring to how people worship God. And so it's a picture of humility. It's a picture of God's awesome holiness, his majestic holiness, and our unworthiness to be in the presence of a holy God. 
But you see, it's also a picture of grace. Because the one who is prostrated before the Lord is allowed to, in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their unworthiness, is allowed to worship a holy God. But here's the question. How? How if these wise men, like all men, if these wise men are sinful, how is it that they can worship a holy God, this baby Jesus? How is it that they can be in the presence of a holy God and their worship be acceptable to him? Well, the answer to that question, or at least the foreshadowing of the answer, is in the gifts that they bring. If you ever visited a newborn baby, maybe you've been to a baby shower, uh, you usually bring something that, I don't know, like a onesie or a box of diapers or a blanket, right? Or something practical, something useful for a baby. But these wise men, they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Like, like right off the bat, like what kind of baby needs frankincense? It's obvious that the significance of these gifts is not in their practical use, but in their symbolic meaning. Now we need to admit that what we're about to do is to speculate a bit because neither the wise men as the givers of these gifts nor Matthew as a narrator tell us the significance of these gifts. But throughout church history, Christians have been pretty consistent in their understanding of these gifts and their meanings that are also found elsewhere in Scripture. The wise men bring gold. Gold is a gift for a king. We see that most clearly, perhaps, in King Solomon. When the Queen of Sheba comes to visit him, she brings very much gold. And so these wise men, right, who have they come to see? The one born king of the Jews. And so it's fitting that they bring him gold. Frankincense. Incense, generally in the Bible, is involved in the worship of God, right? In offerings to God. And so the wise men's gift of frankincense symbolizes that Jesus is the way that men can come to a holy God. Because of his intercession, his mediatory work, the fact that he stands between a holy God and sinful man. We have come to worship. They came to worship. Well, here's the one who makes any true worship of God possible. And so again, it is fitting. It is fitting that they bring him incense. And myrrh. Well, myrrh was commonly used in embalming the dead. And so it's actually not the last time in the Gospels that myrrh is going to be brought to Jesus. John chapter 19 After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus. This is after his death. And they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So at his death, Jesus would be embalmed with myrrh. So this gift, whether the wise men were cognizant of it or not, pointed forward to his death. So putting it all together, the wise men came to worship the king of the Jews, and so they bring him a gift fitting for a king, gold, 
But to worship a holy God inquires, requires rather an intercessor, a means by which sinful man can come to a holy God, and so they bring frankincense. But how would Jesus accomplish that? Like, how would Jesus bring sinners to God? It's by his death. And so they bring him myrrh. You see, this baby who was born in Bethlehem, whom the wise men came to worship, the story doesn't end there. Jesus would live a perfect life as God incarnate. He's fully God and yet fully man. He lives the perfect life that you and I could never live. He always does what is pleasing to the Father. But this Jesus would die on an old rugged cross. And when he hung upon that cross to die, he's not dying for his own sins because he had none. He's dying for the sins of sinners like you and me. He's taking all of the sins that we've ever committed, sins that should sentence us to an eternity in hell. Well, he takes the wrath of God for those sins that we might be forgiven. And in exchange, as a trade, he gives those of us who trust him his perfect righteous record so that we might be made fit for heaven. And he demonstrated that to be true by rising again from the dead on that first Easter Sunday, to live forever and reign forever as our king. And so the Christmas story, Jesus' birth, it's really just like the first part of the redemption that Jesus came to accomplish. And so the good news of Christmas, the good news of this Christmas, is the good news of the gospel, that you can be saved today. That if you turn from your sins and you trust in Jesus, trust in what he did in dying for sinners like you, you can be saved today. What a truly memorable Christmas this would be if you would come to know eternal life even today. But friends, as we depart from this place, let's not forget these wise men. They were resolved to worship Jesus. They they sought him diligently. No barrier was too high. They needed to worship him. And the wise men rejoiced when they found Jesus, the one born king of the Jews, the one for whom they had been searching so diligently. And the wise men were reverent in their worship. They fell on their faces and worshiped him because God had revealed to them who it was who was laying before them. He was the one who would, by his death, make a way for sinners like them, like me, like you, to worship a holy God. Friends, may our hearts be similarly moved this Christmas that we too might be resolved, rejoicing, reverent in our worship of the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would indeed work in our hearts. Lord, that this word might not pass from one year out the other, but would dwell in our hearts, Lord, that we might rightly worship your Son as King over all. Father, we pray for those in this room who came into tonight not knowing you. We pray that tonight 
would be uh, the day of salvation for them, Lord, that they would come to repent and trust in your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.